I think we're good to go. Perfect. Okay. You, you comfy? Yes, very. Okay. Showtime. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us tonight. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome to the show. Tonight's a great night, folks. It's stormy out there. It's rainy. It's cold. I can hear the rain pounding on the studio window. Get in your most comfy chair. Kick your feet up. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going or a beverage of your choice. Settle back and relax. Tonight, one of the legendary researchers of the JFK assassination of all time, David Mantic, Dr. David Mantic, joins us tonight. We're going to be looking at the trial. And are you ready, folks? It's called The State of Texas versus Lee Harvey Oswald. It took place on the campus of South Texas College of Law. Although a mock trial, it included opening and rebuttal statements, the presentation and cross-examination of medical and legal experts, a 12-person jury, presiding judge, the Honorable J.T. Karan, an ethics panel evaluation and prosecutorial obligation to examine new evidence or new science and discussion of constitutional rights in 1963 and today, and it also included a question and answer session with participants and jurors following the verdict. One of the expert witnesses to appear for the defense of Lee Harvey Oswald, and our guest tonight is Dr. David Mantic. David, as fans of the show know, is one of the leading experts on the medical evidence in the JFK assassination. Dr. David Mantic has a PhD in physics. He is a medical doctor and is board certified in radiation oncology at USC. He has made nine visits, count them nine, to the National Archives to examine and perform measurements on the JFK autopsy x-rays. We're going to go there tonight, folks. The autopsy photos, JFK's clothing, and the ballistics evidence. First, there's always some context for those tuning in that are younger members of our audience. On November 22, 1963, at approximately 12.30 noon, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dealey Plaza in Dallas, Texas. Less than an hour after JFK's assassination, a Dallas police officer by the name of J.D. Tippett was shot dead while on patrol. Lee Harvey Oswald was picked up a little bit later than that as a possible suspect of the murder of J.D. Tippett. He was not picked up as a suspect at this point in the assassination of JFK. In the meantime, back to the scene of the assassination, Dealey Plaza, and the police have located a rifle on the sixth floor Texas School Book Depository. Several witnesses have told the police they believe some shots had originated from there. It was then learned that Lee Harvey Oswald was an employee at the Texas School Book Depository and was working on the same sixth floor. Seems like an open and shut case, no? No. But wait, there's more. I sound like a TV guy. Two days later, Lee Harvey Oswald is being transferred from the county courthouse, in Dealey Plaza, by the way, where he's been held since Friday when he was picked up. Oswald is escorted, handcuffed to two Dallas police detectives in the basement. He is surrounded by press and 70 armed police officers. Now, this is live on TV, folks. This is probably the first time this has ever happened. Suddenly, a fellow by the name of Jack Ruby leaps between the press, 
For those of you that are younger that may remember, think of John Hinckley Jr. and how he shot President Kennedy. If you've ever seen the footage, how he jumps through. So Jack Ruby lurches forward from the crowd with a gun and kills Lee Harvey Oswald live on TV. Then it was revealed that Jack Ruby had well-known mafia ties. So what have we got at this point? On Friday, November 22nd, 1963, the President of the United States is assassinated. Lee Harvey Oswald has been now accused to be the assassin. Now, only three days later, he is gunned down on live TV in a police station surrounded by 70 police officers, by the way, by a known mafioso, Jack Ruby. Do we see a problem? Just a little bit. What's the first thing you do in an assassination? You kill the assassin. This raised huge, huge red flags. How could a known mafioso have killed the purported assassin of the President of the United States when that assassin is surrounded by 70 police officers under heavy guard? Was there more now to the open and shut case that we were being fed? It was now impossible, however, to put Lee Harvey Oswald on trial and to question him to find out who he really was and what he knew. Was there indeed a conspiracy or was Oswald just a lone nut assassin? When President Kennedy died, Vice President Lyndon Johnson became president automatically. To answer these questions now, President Lyndon Johnson put together a blue ribbon commission to investigate the assassination. This is known as the Warren Commission. Now, this was similar to the commission to investigate 9-11. To draw a modern analogy for you, the Warren Commission came out and claimed that it was only Lee Harvey Oswald acting by himself. No connection at all to Jack Ruby or anybody else. What's important here to mention is that Lee Harvey Oswald never did get his day in court. Instead, he was declared guilty without ever having a chance to defend himself and the facts around the case. He never got his trial. And that's where we're headed tonight. Just several weeks ago, a mock trial was set up to finally give Lee Harvey Oswald his day in court. Our guest tonight, Dr. David Mantic, MD, PhD, is leading expert on the medical evidence in the JFK assassination. His book, John F. Kennedy's Head Wounds, A Final Synthesis, and a New Analysis of the Harper Fragment. And once again, folks, that trial was called State of Texas versus Lee Harvey Oswald. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you for having me tonight. Our great pleasure. Thank you. Can you set the scene for us? What side of the courtroom did you sit, judge's position? You know, Alec Baldwin was there as well. What was his role? Just a brief synopsis for all that are listening. Alec Baldwin did not participate in the trial. He was the speaker at the banquet, and we all listened with great interest because Alec has been very interested in this entire case for a long time. And he had once prepared a whole show on the JFK assassination for NBC, which they abruptly canceled because they have a policy of not saying anything against the Warren Commission. Let's go back to Alec Baldwin for a second. You mentioned NBC has a policy not to go against the Warren Commission. Is that a policy that you may know of that other networks adopt as well? This is the first time I've heard that yeah, me too. about any of the mainstream media. 
Uh, I have not asked that question, and perhaps someone should ask that question. This may explain a lot of reason why mainstream media won't get behind this thing and keep pushing the Posners and the Bugliosis all these years. Yes, and regarding NBC, yeah. I've only heard Alec Baldwin say this. I haven't heard NBC say that. So perhaps someone might ask uh, Rachel on MSNBC whether that is the official policy of the network. I'm not sure what the policy is here in Canada. I've never heard well, that before. That's the first time I've heard it in the States. That is their policy. Too. I don't see why it shouldn't be public information. How else can people make exactly. decisions? Freedom of speech? Yes. A question. The trial, how was it laid out as you walked into the courtroom? It's an amphitheater, and it is set up rather similar to a courtroom. <clears throat> so the judge is at the very front of the stage. And then in front, on the lower level, are the uh, prosecution and the defense attorneys on opposite sides. So this is rather similar to a usual courtroom. Okay, who went first? Did the defense go first, or did the Well, the prosecution always goes first, okay. and they did here, too. How did they set it up? Well, the first speaker was a, a long nemesis of Dr. Gary Aguilar. You know, I'm blocking on his name right now. He, he may not be on the program. He, he may have been a late addition. I'm, yeah, I'm speculating a little, but that seems to fit this, the facts here. Yeah, I don't have him then. That's all the names I have Yes, from the program. So, so I, I wasn't prepared to present his case. That's okay. I didn't know we were going there, but he did spend a long time. I, I, I think it could have easily have been an hour presenting his ballistic side of the case. And that, of course, would have focused on the Malinker Carcano, where it was found, who owned it, um, whether Oswald had shot it, probably talked about the scope. And also a great deal of time talking about the bullets and what the bullets typically do. And he, he demonstrated <clears throat> with a lot of uh, pictures, which we had, well, there was an overhead screen. So it was easy to demonstrate uh, visual aids easily. And so he made use of that. And he did a, quite a commendable job given the limitations of his case. When you were called to give your testimony as an expert witness, can you tell us about your testimony, how that went, how the prosecutor cross-examined you? Yes. I had prepared um, a, a short lecture on the JFK x-rays, and I in particular had planned to focus on the three artifacts that are extremely powerful pieces of evidence that the x-rays have been altered. Uh, unfortunately, none of that was presented. Uh, the attorney, the defense attorney, who asked me questions was Robert Tannenbaum, and he was more interested in speaking about the so-called bullet trail on the uh, JFK x-rays. So that is what we focus on. Now, the attorney uh, for the, uh, the prosecuting attorney, of course, wanted to belittle my testimony as much as possible, and he made a big point that I was not a ballistics expert, and so my testimony about this was not very useful. He had a hard time challenging what I said. Can you give us some examples of what he had a hard time challenging you about? Well, <clears throat> let's talk specifically about that bullet trail. Sure. Across the top of the x-rays, there are about 35 or 40 small uh, objects that look like metallic particles. They are almost all in the front half of the skull. There are only a few in the in the second and the back half of the skull. 
So what we know about ballistics, and this is really pretty common, easily accessible knowledge. One doesn't need to be a ballistics expert to state some of the fundamental principles. So Pappas was uh, just trying to mislead the jury, of course, as, as that's part of his job. <clears throat> but we know that small particles do not travel very far in tissue. They don't have enough momentum. They just go a short distance. Whereas larger particles, because they have so much more momentum, can travel a lot farther. And the fact is that the largest particle in that whole trail is the one that's uh, most posterior. It has traveled the farthest. So all of that is consistent with a bullet coming from the front. It is not consistent with a bullet coming from the, from the rear. And where you point it is, is close to where I believe that bullet entered. Now you're really close. That is probably where that bullet entered. Uh, high on the right forehead, right at the hairline, which made it very difficult to see for the medical people, and only a few of them actually noticed it. Uh, but anyway, all those fine bullet particles uh, are much, much more consistent with the bullet coming from the front. It's very hard to explain how a bullet coming from the rear would cause that kind of pattern. Now, the expert witness who followed shortly after me was uh, Michael uh, Chesser, MD, a neurologist, who had been to the archives very recently, and he made an even more powerful case in this direction, that the bullet entered from the front. He saw lots of very tiny particles at the forehead, just uh, inside the skull, that no one else has seen. I missed them, and so did all of the other people who have visited. Uh, but Michael had suspected something based on the image he'd, images he'd seen before, and so he was particularly focused on this area, and he looked at it extremely carefully, to his great credit. And he not only saw a lot of fine particles there in the forehead, the right forehead, just where you pointed, uh, just inside the skull, but he also saw a hole in the skull that would be consistent with the passage of a bullet right at that same site. So Michael had a chance to present all of this information in his own testimony there at the mock trial. To me, that was the most powerful new evidence that was presented in those two days. It was, it was new and extremely powerful. It's very, very hard to argue that the uh, images that uh, Michael saw uh, were caused by a bullet coming from the rear. That just makes no sense. And if the jury was listening... If the jury was listening at all to this, I don't see how they could have attributed that shot to Oswald because Oswald was behind JFK. How did, how did Oswald do that, shooting from the front? That makes no sense. What was the jury listening to? I was going to ask you, did you have a chance to gauge the reaction of the jury when this testimony was taking place? No, I, I couldn't because I was so focused on, on Tannenbaum, the defense attorney, and the lighting didn't make it easy. And when I was in the audience listening to the other witnesses, uh, I was only seeing the back of the heads of the jury. So I, I, I could not really do that. How did Pappas try to debunk this new evidence? Well, mainly by saying that I was not a ballistics expert. Oh, my goodness. That was attack. Well, that's true, but you don't really have to be a ballistics expert to present such elementary information. No kidding. And but that was his, that was his only that was his only hope. He had he had no other attack that he could mount. I mean, I have a yeah. PhD in physics. He couldn't attack that. I am an MD. 
not only that, I'm a radiation oncologist who looks at x-rays all yeah, the time. Every day. Yeah, yeah. And, and if I misread the x-rays, I don't kill the cancer. So he can't argue that I don't know what I'm talking about. That, that was really the only thing he could use. And so he used it. Uh, I don't know how effective it was. You'd have to ask the jury. <laughs> okay. When you were giving your testimony, um, I imagine you were quite convincing as you are now. Did he offer any expertise whatsoever to counter your arguments? Did oh, no, no. experts in or it, anything of that nature? Because this was such an overwhelmingly powerful argument between what I said and what uh, Dr. Chesser said. His best tactic was to say nothing. And that is exactly what he did. There was no counter-argument. None whatsoever? No, not for that. How can you? Wow. Wow is right. Yeah. And I hope the jury noticed that. It would be very <laughs> interesting to know what, how they responded to this. If their wits were about them, they should have realized, well, this is the end of that story. Very quickly. What was the testimony given by... Dr. Robert McClellan. I've had Dr. McClellan on the show before. He always has maintained the same story from day one right through. And that's what, in the legal profession, people look for is that consistency, no change in story. How did Pappas react to that when he gave his testimony about that back of the head being blown out? Well, he didn't do it. Uh, he just called in to say hello and wished us all well. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. But I have watched his his video interviews on sure. the internet many times and he is extremely powerful and I agree he's totally consistent he was the person closest to the back of JFK's head during this whole procedure in the ER at Parkland Hospital he knew what he saw he saw a big hole at the right rear of the head he's uh, basically uh, signed off on a sketch that's in the public record indicating there was a big hole back there and he also has said repeatedly that he saw cerebellum actually fall out of out through that hole onto the table while he was watching. He's always been consistent by that. Can you tell yes. the folks what the importance of that cerebellum means? People may not be aware of where that is in the head in its profoundness to this case, proving a frontal shot and the back of his head being blown out. Well, the big hole was in the back of his head. That's the point. And we all know that exit holes are routinely larger, usually much larger, than entry holes. So the fact that there was a big hole back there right away means that it's very likely that that's the exit, not the entrance. If that's the exit, then the entrance must be in front. That's what you and I were talking about earlier. But am I not mistaken in that the cerebellum is only found at the back of the head and that yes. area? Yeah, you that's what I was getting exactly at. exactly right. Yeah. And that leads to the, the big controversy that we've had between the two major government investigations about this case. The Warren Commission uh, agreed that the uh, back, the low back of the head was wounded by a bullet coming in at that site. They do not accept a large hole in the rear. They only say that there was a, as an entry hole back there, but it was low on the back of the head. Then the second government investigation by the House Select Committee on Assassinations raised that by four inches. So they're more near the top of the head, yes, that you're pointing well. They actually moved it way up there. So these two government investigations couldn't even agree among themselves where the wound was. But neither one accepted a large hole in the back of the head, which virtually all the uh, witnesses at Parkland saw 
and virtually all the witnesses at the autopsy also saw this, plus even some people in Dealey Plaza, like uh, Clint Hill and uh, a few other folks. David, your expertise, of course, is the x-rays and finding those little fragments. Is there any way at all, any way in hell, if you will, a rear shot would have put those fragments at the front of the head? Is there any way in hell that could have happened? Well, I've, I've never seen... Uh, that described in any textbook I've read, and again, I'm not a ballistics expert, uh, but it's it's against all the principles of the physics of of small particles in tissue. That's a physics issue. It's not really a ballistics issue. Fundamentally, it's all about physics. So I I don't see how you can get those tiny particles near the forehead, just inside the skull, from a posterior shot. That's just crazy. Let's talk about that supposed rear shot then for a second. Now, the Warren Commission put out a diagram. I'm going to try and find it for you folks on television and put it up there. Essentially what it does is it shows the side of JFK's head, the right side of JFK's head being blown out by a shot to the back of the head. Is there any way that could have happened? Where did they get this idea from? Well, the, the head wound was very large. Although the witnesses primarily focused on the large hole in the back of the head, there were some witnesses who recognized that the wound actually went all the way to the forehead, uh, to the, well, not to the uh, hairline, I should say, where that bullet came in. The big hole in the skull actually started, yeah, that's very good, started where you started with your finger and went all the way back, and that's what the autopsy report says, too. It was a very large wound, and that's all by itself very strange that a Manlicher carcinal bullet would produce that kind of wound. That, that's not expected, but it yeah, was a very I, large wound. I always call it the Cirque du Soleil bullet because, you know, it dances around and everything else. I'm not talking about the magic bullet, folks. I'm talking about the headshot. Now, is there any chance that Kennedy was shot twice, once in the front and then once from the back? Oh, I believe there are actually three headshots. Oh, oh, please, please. Yeah, we, we, we've only recently come to that conclusion. Now, I have to give a lot of credit to Douglas Horn first, because that's in his five-volume set. Douglas was the first one to recognize that. So I was a little slow on the uptake. Uh, but the reasons are all spelled out in my ebook. I picked up on what Doug had said, and I developed it further with more um, data, more information but I can summarize it uh, briefly. We know that tissue debris was found on the front of the limousine. Tissue debris was on the front of the limousine. Now you have to picture the limousine uh, advancing forward and also remembering that the wind was blowing against the limousine up to 20 miles per hour. And yet you have tissue debris on the far front of the limousine. How does that get there from a frontal shot? No, it's not possible. That's one of the powerful arguments for the fact that there was indeed a posterior headshot as well. The Warren Commission was right about that, I think. And so were the autopsy pathologists. They swore up and down that they had evidence for it. I think they were right. There was a shot low on the right rear of the head. And that's what caused this tissue debris to go so far forward against the wind 
It's very hard to explain otherwise, but there's lots of other information supporting that conclusion as well, and it's, it's in my, my ebook. So there we have one shot, don't we? It is a posterior shot. Uh, I think that's, that's really what happened. But you do, pointed out, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to say, we, that's one shot. Now we know about that's the other the one from the front. Yes, yeah. you've given us the second shot from the front, and I think that's where you're pointing is very, very close to where it came in. It was right at his hairline, which made it very hard for most people to see. Mm-hmm. The third shot. Uh, let me make another comment about sure, that one. please do. If you look at the autopsy photographs, you don't see a bullet entry hole there. What you see instead is an incision, as if someone took a scalpel and ran it right through the bullet hole to disguise it. And you know what? The second pathologist at the autopsy, Boswell, said that was an incised wound. What? Why would you incise a wound? So in those two words, he's saying volumes. He's saying there was a wound there, even though they didn't officially report it. That's what he said later. And he also said that they had probably run a scalpel through it. Well, presumably, the autopsy photographs show what JFK looked like before the pathologist did anything. That's the whole purpose. You don't want pictures taken after they've been messing with the body. So the photographs show an incision there. But we also know that in Parkland, there was no incision there. Everybody said there was nothing wrong with his face. Even though that wound was there, it was probably buried in the hairline. They didn't see it. So somebody incised that wound before they took the photographs at the autopsy. And obviously it worked. It covers up the wound. I've been at the archives looking really closely at that site. I can't see the wound there. But there's an incision there that wasn't supposed to be there. So obviously somebody did that. And the the purpose is pretty obvious. It was very successful at covering up the, the hole there. All right. So now we've got two shots. But here's the problem. There's a big hole in the back of the head. It's low on the back of the head. Furthermore, that that second shot that came in the forehead, we can correlate that with that bullet trail on the x-rays, the same bullet bullet trail we were talking about before. That bullet trail is high on the head. It's not low on the head. It's way up high on the head. It's consistent with that entry where where you pointed. So it's too high, and we see, basically, we see the end of that trail, and it stops essentially way before it gets to the back of the head, because these particles are all small. Yet, we still have now a big hole at the right rear of the head. What caused that? That's where we have to invoke a third shot. And that shot is consistent, again, with so many witnesses, especially those who are close to JFK. That shot came from the the right front. It entered just in front of his ear, near the top of his ear. And there's so many witnesses who saw that, and that's what blew out the right rear of his head. And we can't, we really cannot explain all the facts if we limit ourselves to two shots. It just doesn't work. Was there any x-ray evidence of fragments from that shot coming in just above his ear? in the, any of the x-rays? No. Hmm. But here's what we know. 
We know that uh, Dennis David typed a report. You remember that at the autopsy. He wasn't a participant in the autopsy, but he was given a few bullet fragments, which he said were more than one bullet, but no more than two. So it's a small number of pieces. And he typed a report saying that he got these and they were presumably taken from JFK's head. Well, we don't see anything like that on the x-rays. So the conclusion is that they were taken out before the x-rays were taken. Here's something else we know. James Jenkins, who was at the autopsy and was the primary assistant to the pathologist standing right next to JFK all night long, has said repeatedly that there was a plastic bag, a transparent plastic bag that was laid on the table next to JFK's head, which contained bullet fragments and skull fragments. We don't see those either. And then we have Tom Robinson, who actually described the pathologist removing bullet fragments from the head. So we can jump to the bottom line and, and say, well, if that third bullet, the one that came in near the ear, did leave a bullet trail there with some fragments there, the pathologist took them out. How did they know where to find them? Well, they took a first series of x-rays, and then a second series, and maybe even a third series, according to the witnesses that we have. And between each set of x-rays, the radiology technologist had to leave the autopsy suite, walk through the hallway, take an elevator to a higher floor where, they, where the dark room was located. See, they're, they're in the morgue. They don't have a dark room in the morgue. They had to go a long ways away, and they were gone for substantial periods of time on each trip. And so you can picture the pathologist reading the first set of x-rays and thinking to themselves, oh, well, we know that this is just a lone gunman. They were basically told this before. So they knew that they were going to get in big trouble if they reported these bullet fragments all over. So they had time looking at the x-rays, and they had time between the first and second set of x-rays to remove those. There was probably even a third set. So they could confirm whether they had been successful or not in removing these between all those trips upstairs. So we have at least three witnesses who describe um, bullet fragments. There's even a picture in one of Harry Livingston's books of, of frag. Of, uh, metal fragments, presumably bullet fragments like this. They're unidentified. They're, we have no chain of possession. But <laughs> there they are, a huge mystery. Where did these come from? <laughs> when you think of all the murders that take place on a daily basis, even back in 63, there would be a chain of evidence. The murder of the president of the United States? Nothing. It's unbelievable how these fragments just disappeared and x-rays were presumably doctored etc 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 who in your opinion was really pulling the strings during the autopsy well douglas horn believes it was roy kellerman and i think he he makes a good case for that you remember who roy kellerman was a secret service guy folks i should tell you the people in the car there was jfk right at the back passenger side right at the back right next to him of course was jackie right in front of jackie was mrs connelly governor connelly's wife Right beside Governor Connolly's wife was Governor Connolly, right in front of JFK. In front of Governor Connolly was 
Mr. Kellerman, Secret Service agent, in the passenger side front seat. Right next to him was Mr. Greer, who was the driver, also Secret Service. I hope that, yeah, and I'll put that picture up again for television. So, yeah, I, I didn't realize Kellerman was in charge. I thought he would have. Yeah, Kellerman arrived about 7 o'clock at the uh, Bethesda Naval Medical Center where the autopsy was done. That's pretty well documented. We know what time he arrived, and uh, as, I, as I recall, came in the limousine um, at the same time Jackie and her entourage did. Uh, the body, however, probably arrived about 6.35, and Douglas Horn lays this all out with documentary evidence. So for uh, a little while, maybe 25 minutes or so, there was no direction <laughs> uh, being offered to anyone. Uh, so they had to go on kind of blindly. But then Kellerman arrived on the scene and, and controlled uh, what was happening, most likely. Most likely. Was was somebody above him pulling his strings as well? I mean, there must have been layers of this thing up on top. Well, think about the hierarchy here. Yeah. Who who does uh, in in what government department is the Secret Service located? Uh, treasury, if you can believe that, in the Treasury Department. <laughs> and the the head of the Treasury reports to the president. That's that's how short this chain of command is. Wow. So it goes right up the ladder right away. Very quickly, yes. Very, very quickly. Okay, your expertise back again to the x-rays. Is there a chance the x-rays were doctored, perhaps little pieces of tape put over them, and then re-photographed? No, no, that's not possible. You, you can see at the archives that these are authentic x-rays. These are real x-rays. And, and most um, radiologists, most people familiar with x-rays, uh, would not even begin to think that these are copy x-rays. We're talking about the skull x-rays in particular. There are other x-rays of the body, too, which there was no uh, motive or incentive to change. I believe those are all authentic, uh, original generation x-rays. We're, we're just focused on the three skull x-rays, two laterals and one anterior x-ray. Now, what's curious is that the original collection probably included five or six skull x-rays, not just three. And why do we say that? Well, I have spoken to both the radiologist at the autopsy, John Ebersol, and independently to the uh, x-ray tech, Gerald Custer. And independently of each other, they both told me there were five or six x-rays taken, and Gerald Custer explicitly remembers taking an oblique x-ray. But we have only three left now. What is an oblique x-ray? I've never heard that term before. Well, it's, at an, well, it's a, at an intermediate angle between shooting from straight forward and from the side. It's probably more forward than, than lateral, as it usually is. And it would be interesting to ask Gerald Custer why he took that. I don't know that I ever did or that anyone else ever did. Um, uh, it's, it, we can only speculate on that. But he specifically remembers doing that. Maybe he just thought it was part of being a, uh, doing a really thorough job. But the, the x-rays, the three, the three skull x-rays that we have, have been altered. Each one has been altered in its own way. And it would have been virtually impossible to effectively alter an oblique x-ray to be compatible, to be consistent. And so that one had to go for sure. That's just too hard. How have they been altered then, David? All right, so let's talk about that. On the frontal x-ray, 
there is what appears to be a bullet fragment inside the right eyeball, the right orbit. Yes. Right. Now, <clears throat> it's 6.5 millimeters in diameter. Interesting size. Why is that an interesting size? <laughs> you go ahead. I was going to say, but you go ahead. <laughs> oh, you, no, you say it. That's good. Manlicher Carcano. That was, was the size 6. of the bullet. Five millimeters. Yeah. Isn't that odd that they're exactly the same diameter? It was like it was planned or something. Wow. Very interesting. Um, most people who don't look too carefully at the x-rays think that this thing lies on the back of the head, but actually it, it doesn't. It's a fake, so it doesn't lie anywhere. It's in, uh, it's in a third or fourth dimension, I should say, because it's a fake. Well, how do we know it's a fake? Well, what was the purpose of taking these x-rays at all that whole night? They took a lot of x-rays. Why, why were they taking x-rays? Well, there's only one simple answer, isn't it? You're looking for bullet fragments. Why else would you take x-rays? This thing is by far the biggest apparent bullet fragment in all the x-rays. That's why you're taking them. And so what did the, what did the pathologists, what did the radiologists say about this thing? Did they grab it right away and take it out? No, they did not. Instead, they took out two much, much smaller pieces of metal, and they didn't take that one out. Why didn't they take it out? Well, they were asked that question by the Assassination Records Review Board, where Doug was present and Jeremy Gunn, his boss. So each one of these three pathologists, independently, under oath, were asked, why didn't you take that out? And their answer was, it wasn't there. At the autopsy, remember, there were dozens, literally dozens of folks, and they could see, almost certainly they could see the x-rays posted on the view box. They could hear what was being talked about. No one remembers any discussion about that thing. No one remembers seeing it. It doesn't exist at the autopsy. It only shows up in the record with the Clark panel report more than four years later. That's the first time we know anything about this. How can that be? This has never happened in radiology before, that bullet fragments appear during an interval of four years when they weren't there in the first place. And we know they weren't there in the first place. Nobody would miss them. These things are so easy to see. Here's, here's a little anecdote for you. When, my, when I first started getting interested in this case, I was reading David Lifton's book, which had these x-rays in there as prints. And I said to myself, wow, that's pretty easy to see. I, I wonder if the children could see that. So I called my, I think my son was seven at the time, over to look at the x-ray. And I said, Chris, can you, can you find the bullet here? And he said, yeah, right there. Of course, he was right. And so I'm thinking, this is crazy. So I, my, my daughter was five years old, sitting across the table. She didn't see what we did. So I was wondering if she could see it. So I said, uh, Meredith, can you come over here and find the bullet? And she came over and looked at it, and she said, well, what's it supposed to look like? <laughs> I said, well, it should look a little white. She said, oh, there. She spotted it. No radiology training. They spotted it right away, yet dozens of people at the autopsy missed it totally. So did three pathologists and one radiologist. Nobody saw it. Painted so, in afterwards? 
what they did, uh, as I've explained many times in my lectures, which can be found online, x-rays can be copied in the darkroom. And in that era, of course, we, we didn't have digital x-rays imaging, no digital imaging. These are real x-rays on plastic sheets with gel emulsion on both sides. And if you wanted to copy an x-ray, you just went into the darkroom, you got a, a brand new x-ray, put it on the photocopier, turn the light on, and bingo, you have exposed a copy film. Of course, you have to develop it to, to get the image. It's not like a photocopier where everything is one step. This is a two-step process. So I didn't realize this right away because this was way before my time. We're talking about 1963. But I started talking to some radiology techs who were around in that era, and I said, well, tell me how you copied x-rays. And so they explained this all to me. They didn't even have copy machines in that era for the most part. They did this all manually. But it was a two-step process anyway. And so what I realized was, oh, my gosh, if you did a double exposure, you could change the image on the copy film. Suppose you just cut out a little hole, 6.5 millimeters in size, and put that on top of your first exposed copy film and did a second exposure, then that would, no one could tell you'd done a double exposure. It would just look like a bullet fragment. And then you develop the film, and you've got everything you wanted. You've got the original film, and you've got the bullet fragment there. So that's what they did. Who would have the capabilities and the knowledge to put that false bullet fragment precisely at that point? I, I really, only a radiologist would know how to do that. Uh -huh. And so the morning after the assassination, Saturday morning, Gerald Custer was called back into the radiology suite by his boss, John Eversall. And Gerald Custer was told to take x-rays of bullet fragments taped to skulls. What? Yeah, he, that's what he said. He was asked to take, take x-rays of bullet fragments that were taped to skulls. So you see what's happening. Eversall is trying right away to do something he shouldn't have been doing. He's trying to change the image here. It was only later, obviously, that he realized this, this could all be done in the darkroom. He didn't have to go into the lab. And so in 1993, I called Ebersol and talked to him. And about a month later, he invited me to call him back. So I called him back, but this time I had my recording on. And I recorded the whole conversation. It's in the archives. And so we talked for a while about various aspects of the autopsy because I had one critical question to ask him, and I didn't want to blow it right away. But eventually we got to the question, and I said, uh, do you remember that 6.5-millimeter fragment uh, on the uh, AP X-ray? And he never said another word about the autopsy to me or to anyone else. That was the end of the conversation. That was the end of his contribution to history that stopped him cold to me it's almost like an admission of guilt of course of course yeah it's certainly not incompetence i mean if your five-year-old daughter can pick it out my goodness no i'm sure somebody with his expertise could that image it was right not away. there that image was not there the pathologists all agree never saw but not talk about it 
So it's so easy to add yeah. um, something like that. And, and I showed how easy it was to do that by, by making fake images myself. One, one morning I took my, my daughter's little tracing kit for a pteranodon into the darkroom, cut out a hole appropriately, and, and superimposed this pteranodon on, on a skull x-ray. So I call that my bird brain skull x-ray and that's that you can see that in my work so there's no problem faking things like this that's that's easy once you think of it you have to think of it first because nobody done it before in all of history but yet they're the the option to do that was there ever since we started making photographic i mean sorry x-ray film but nobody thought about doing it and since then people have done some other cute things with um, double exposed x-rays but that was the first. Another area of your expertise, and I'm just looking at the time, and I don't want to keep you over time, but is the Harper Fragment. Could you explain to the folks what the Harper Fragment is? By the way, folks, our guest tonight, Dr. David Mantic. Yeah, are we lucky or what to have an expert like this on the show? The book is called John F. Kennedy's Head Wounds, A Final Synthesis and New Analysis of the Harper Fragment. You can find all the links for everything we're talking about tonight on the website. The Harper Fragment, can you explain with that is to the folks that may be unaware of this and how that plays in? This was not at the autopsy. This is a piece of bone, almost certainly from Kennedy's skull, that was discovered in Dealey Plaza not until Sunday. This is two days after the assassination. It was discovered by Billy Harper, which is why it's called the Harper Fragment. It's... um, say about five by seven centimeters so it's a a modest size I guess we should have a model here but if you have a ruler you can look it up so Billy Harper took this to his uncle Dr. Harper at Methodist Hospital and they confirmed that it was human skull in fact three pathologists looked at it there together they confirmed that it was human skull, that it was fresh human skull. And so the conclusion is pretty obvious. It was from JFK. I don't think anybody really disputes that. The, the more interesting question was, what part of the skull was this from? All three pathologists agreed that it came from the um, occipital area. That's the back of the head. So we already said there was a big hole back there. So, well, that would make sense, wouldn't it? It would make good sense that this bone, the Harper fragment, came from the hole. And we know that they didn't have all the bones at the autopsy. The pathologist made that pretty clear. But they, they never saw the Harper fragment because it came too late. And now it's disappeared. Nobody knows where it is. <clears throat> we have x-rays of it, though, taken by the FBI, and I discuss that in my work. I never we knew have... it disappeared. I always thought it was in the yeah, other no, no, it disappeared. <gasps> Nobody knows where it is, but we have very good x-rays of it, and we have very high-quality photographic images of it, too. And and that's part of why I could do such detailed analysis in my book about the Harbor Fragment. But back to the three pathologists. They they all agreed that it came from the occiput, the back of the head. And the reason they did, according to um, Dr. Cairns, who has spoken the most about it, is because he could see specific markings on the inside of the skull that characterize the uh, occipital area. Very specific markings, he said. And so everything seems to make sense there. Unfortunately, a lot of people have misread the x-rays and have said that 
all the bone is present back there, and so it could not have come from the back of the head. Maybe it came from the top of the head, uh, but they mis- they've misread the x-rays. There really is a big hole back there on the back of the head, and who but John Ebersol agreed with that? John Ebersol's the radiologist. He's at the autopsy. He said there was a big hole in the back of the head. He agreed with that, and he saw the x-rays. What better expert to, con- to conclude, to confirm, that the Harper fragment came from the back of the head. In fact, Ebersol said that when some other bone fragments uh, came into the autopsy, uh, the so-called triangular fragment in particular, they, they were actually at the autopsy. Um, he, he said uh, basically, well, he was thinking this is basically uh, coming from the back of the head because that's where I saw the hole. Well, he was wrong. They, they, they don't fit there. They fit somewhere else. But he tells us two very important things. There was a hole in the back of the head, no doubt about that, really low on the back of the head. And he also saw the x-rays. He's the radiologist. Of course he'd see the x-rays. And he had no trouble believing that that hole was, that bone was missing at the back of the head, in spite of what a lot of misinformed people who have said the opposite sense. So there we have more proof, too, that there was a frontal shot, because that proves that there yes. was a piece of the, exactly. the skull missing from the back of the head, as well as the cerebellum, yes. and yes. the line coming in, and the line coming in. So Everything fits. In everything fact, in my, fits. everything fits. In my ebook, I give actually 15 clues that there was a hole in the back of the head, and the Harper fragment fits in that hole. Once again, the, folks, the, the e-book is John F. Kennedy's Head Wounds, A Final Synthesis and a New Analysis of the Harper Fragment. And Dr. David Mantix, our guest tonight, we've got a few minutes left, and I always wanted to ask you this. I've never had the opportunity to. JFK is supposed to be got shot in the back. Now, according to the magic bullet theory, this thing goes upwards and outwards, comes out the throat. Was there ever any x-rays taking of his upper body? Yes, yes. Does we have several any, x-rays of his chest, neck area. Are we able to follow any kind of trajectory through his no. body? No. There are no metal fragments there to, to guide us with that. Ah, no. okay. But okay. we know that that wound in the back was very shallow. How do we know that? The, the, the pathologist that said know. that. Okay. pathologist said that. And um, James Jenkins also saw the pathologist, and he yep. describes exactly what they did. And James says that, when they pushed their finger in that hole, their finger did not enter the lung. It just moved the lining of the lung, the pleura. It moved the lining of the lung, and that was it. It didn't go through there. So what caused that? Well, obviously a small particle that didn't, doesn't travel very far. Uh, we also know that there was metallic residue on the back of JFK's coat and shirt. So this was a metallic fragment. So it almost certainly piece of a bullet that must have the bullet must have been fired from the rear hit the street and bounced up and fragmented and a piece hit his back and we have I think there are five witnesses altogether in Dealey Plaza who saw that kind of thing happen and at least three of them are in the Warren report the Warren Commission report so this is pretty understandable and they simply ignored it now the throat the throat when you brought something up that was very very interesting in the information you sent me many people believe of course it is a frontal wound but you said it could have been caused by glass from the windshield yes. could you explain that, that to the folks that, that bullet was there? never found that bullet was never found no fragment of a bullet was ever found but we have many 
powerful and believable witness who, witnesses who said that there was a hole in the windshield. And it wasn't superficial. It went all the way through the windshield. We have witnesses in Daly Plaza who said that. We have witnesses at the Ford Motor Company who handled the windshield and said, no, it went all the way through. We saw it. We have that on tape. And what happens when a bullet goes through a windshield? Well, it produces a lot of shards of glass, very small shards of glass. So most likely, one of those shards hit JFK in the throat and caused that throat wound. That glass would not have been picked up by x-rays, would not have been found by the pathologist, but it could have produced the wounds that occurred, including the, the uh, injury at the top of the lung consistent with that trajectory. And here's the real catcher. When uh, they were fixing JFK up, uh, the, the morticians, they noticed that fluid was leaking out two tiny holes in his cheek. What? How did those get there? Oh, more glass shards. He wasn't hit by one. He was hit by three glass shards. Two of them were probably much smaller and caused those two tiny holes in his cheek where the fluid was leaking out. Here's what else we know about bullets hitting windshields. The glass shards come out in a, a cone, of course, as you would expect. But the cone is a very narrow angle. It doesn't spread out. So that means that no one else in the limousine would have been hit unless you're standing right in front of it. And obviously, if you have a gunman shooting at JFK, that's where these glass shards are going to go, aren't they? So they only hit him. That's why nobody else knows about this. I thought that was an incredible piece of information that I was completely unaware of before. I knew yeah. about the whole knee, but I never connected the two. So that was great. What was the outcome of the trial? It was six to five. Uh, there were only 11 jurors. I, I don't remember exactly what happened to the 12th. I, it was intended to have 12, but somebody disappeared. So six voted to convict and five voted against conviction. Oh, the other thing I was going to say, if we had gotten back to it, was I would have preferred to have the question totally differently phrased. Was there a conspiracy, yes or no? Yeah, yeah. That, to me, is what this is all about, because, you know, a lot of us, you know, are totally committed to a conspiracy approach to this whole case, but at the same time, we, we wonder, maybe Oswald did do something, so maybe we couldn't let him go free, I mean. I think... Uh, researchers like yourself, you mentioned David Lifton, of course, been on the show, Best Evidence, and he's got his new book coming out, and all the other great researchers that have taken this from day one and brought us to where we are today. I think we've proved beyond reasonable doubt, way beyond reasonable doubt, sure. that there was, there a, was conspiracy, a conspiracy, without, yeah. question, without question. Whether Oswald was guilty or innocent, that, that's a much trickier question, and it's not surprising sure that so many juries have got hung up, literally mock trials. In, in mock trials. So many of these mock trial juries have gotten hung up, literally hung up, and, and couldn't reach a verdict. Although I saw one of them uh, found him not guilty. Well, even Garrison's trial, you know, they, Garrison proved there was a conspiracy as far as the jurors were concerned. Whether That's or not right. Shaw was involved, they were yeah. not sure. And that is the big question. Was there a conspiracy or not? Yeah. That, that's the question most people care about.
Oswald guilt or innocence is less important. And thanks for that information about NBC. I'm going to try and use my contacts in the meeting. Oh my gosh! So Somebody ought to follow up on this. This is shocking. There, uh, uh, where's the freedom a guideline of on this stuff? This is crazy. That, that's crazy. Yeah. How how can you issue a guideline in the face of new data coming in? The that's guideline nuts. stands in the face of new data. What kind of sense does that make? That's Somebody's pulling the strings. I'm telling oh, yeah, you. obviously. No question. We know that's true. The question is yep. how overt it is. Exactly right. We're going to start to wrap up now so you can get some sleep, my friend. I thank you so much for coming on the show tonight and educating the folks that are listening right now because a lot of my demographic are students of student age, and uh, this is going to help them out a lot. That's why I sit down and I explain things much more than if you're on a different show. So, oh, you did a wonderful job, and and you're very we're not kind. really ex we're not really ex students, are we? <laughs> not in my case, anyway. You know, I still have it on my bucket list, my friend, to finally get my PhD. One day I'll finish it up. Yeah, what and could be do better it. than being a student? So I love I love your audience. <laughs> right on, right on. I like the way you think too. The incredible, the only Dr. David Mantic. It's so kind to come on tonight, and uh, his expertise, of course, is always, always informative and riveting for us. His book is called John F. Kennedy's Head Wounds, A Final Synthesis and a New Analysis of the Harper Fragment. Thanks again, Dr. David. Have a good night. You too. It's like my friend. I'm Brent Holland for The Brent Holland Show. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time. And we're out. Thank you so much, David. That's very Oh, you're still on. Okay. Yeah. Well, you did you did a fantastic job. I'm glad I was able to say that. And Thank I, you. I think for your audience, you have to take that route. And it, it's really essential that you build the foundation and build the context, as you said. Yeah. And then things begin to make a little more sense. Yeah, I think so, too. And that way we can pass this off to the next generation as well. Because oh, it's so, so important. Essential. Yeah. 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 That, that's great. JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brent Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.